Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 164th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is uh, Richard Salzman. I'm a senior scholar for the Atlas Society. We're the uh, leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways uh, like animated videos uh, and graphic novels. Now, today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Ray Niles, but before I introduce Ray, I want to remind those of you who are watching us on Zoom or are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, various other social media, you can use the comments section uh, to type in your questions. Uh, we'll get to as many of them as we can, possibly during the interview, but definitely at the end of the interview. So welcome all. And uh, now to our guest. Uh, Ray Niles is a PhD and a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, also currently teaching economics at St. John's University in New York. Uh, he earned his PhD in economics from George Mason University in Virginia. He earlier than that earned his MBA in finance and economics from the Stern School of Business at NYU. Uh, now, before embarking on his academic career, which is more recent, he worked for over 15 years on Wall Street as a senior equity research analyst at places like Citigroup, Schroeder's, and Goldman Sachs. Uh, he's a longtime objectivist. He's published numerous articles in scholarly and popular publications, including the Review of Austrian Economics, including the Objective Standard on various issues related to economics, to internet policy, and to government regulation. And as to his first affiliation, I highly recommend that you go to AIER.org and search for Ray Niles, N-I-L-E-S. Uh, he issues uh, essays periodically. They're very good. They're very well done. They're very interesting. Ray, it's great to see you again. I know we've known each other for years. There's the full disclosure, but I really want to get into how you're doing, what you're doing. But, you know, we normally start because this audience really likes what we call origin stories. So the origin story idea is how did you get to objectivism? How did you get to Ayn Rand's writings? How early your initial reactions? Really curious about that kind of origin. Well, so I've been an objectivist, I would say it's over over four decades. Wow. And I... Um, it was really serendipity. Uh, I was in a used bookstore at age 13 and looking for something to read. And I saw Anthem on the shelf of a used bookstore. And, you know, I pulled it out. I looked at the cover, the man with the light bulb. It just intrigued me. And I, I was very interested. That, that was when I was reading a lot of sci-fi, some dystopian books like 1984, which scared the heck out of me. Uh -huh. And uh, and it, it, it really... I, it changed my life. It, I thought it was very profound, uh, you know, the discovering I, discovering the value of yourself, that you should live for yourself. And I immediately proceeded to read all of Ayn Rand's books. And it was funny, though, I was 13. So I said, well, um, I'm going to you know, read her fiction first before the nonfiction, but I'm going to read it in the order that she wrote it. Huh. And the reason I said that, so I, I you know, read We the Living, then Fountainhead, then Atlas Shrugged, you know, after Anthem. I said, because I'll be older and more able to appreciate and understand Atlas, which I knew was a very important book, you know, just as thick as it was. So I was about age 15 when I read Atlas. 
you know, I declared to my parents that I was an atheist. I was raised Catholic, you know, a lot of fireworks with regard to that. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I, 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 the other thing, one little tidbit, you know, you and I met and I think it might've been 1985. Right. Um, yeah. So I went to the very first objective. In, in, in New York, it was in New York city, right? We were both well, in New York city. Or- maybe it was. So okay. maybe we have to, talk about that because uh, yeah. I thought it was might have been at the Thomas Jefferson School oh, in Congress. La Jolla, La Jolla. In La Jolla. So I yes. went to, I went to the first two, the very first objectivist conference ever given. Yeah. It was called the the Thomas Jefferson School, right. Yeah. You know, right a year after Ayn Rand had died. And um, I was all of like uh, 18 or 19, you know, I was pretty young. And I thought I took like, you know, took all my savings to do this. And ah. I thought, well, I better go because yeah. there may never be another conference like this, ah, wow. you know, so I've got to go. So I, and, you know, and, and uh, I found it very interesting. And so, you know, I've been an objectivist ever since I found it very practical and helpful uh, uh, in my life. You know, uh, one thing you're unique about is objectivism and economics. There aren't that many objectivist economists. Now, at the time, those conferences are run by George Reisman, right, who taught at Pepperdine for many years, and he knew both Rand and Mises which is an interesting yes. lineage, you know? So having met the man who knew the two giants, uh, Nort Beekner, I think was another economist at the time, but there weren't that many, maybe Hans Senholtz who given a lecture every once in a while. What were your initial impressions of Reisman? Because he eventually came out with that huge, great, wonderful book called Capitalism later, but he, he was lecturing at those conferences in the eighties. Oh yeah, he organized them as well. Yeah, and right. and, and the, my impression is, you know, young kid, young adult, but. I thought he was such a gracious man. That's sort of yeah. what really struck me. Just gracious, like it's just his bearing, um, very um, open and and uh, you know like a kind type person, like somebody you felt you could really talk with. Right. Uh, you know. So I that's and I I enjoyed how he ran the conferences. Very you know sort of punctual and he had interesting guests. We had Edward Teller, the co-inventor of the hydrogen bomb. Right. Come and talk and right. Peter Beckman, the physicist. Beckman, the and, physicist, you know, yeah. Didn't he invite I think he invited Walter Williams one year. Walter was great. Yeah, I, I don't think I attended then. So Walter yeah. Williams was one of my professors at GMU. At GMU, he me talked, too. Me too. We both had him. He, he was wonderful, wasn't he? He's wonderful. Wonderful. Um, uh yep. A, a great professor and, and enjoyed him very much. Um, you know, he was a funny guy too. I mean, what I also remember about the Reisman lectures is they were the beginnings of the chapter of that great book. So we were getting it live, so to speak. We were getting it in real yeah. time uh, each summer. That was uh, just wonderful. I'm just curious, Ray, going back to what you said earlier, atheism came up very soon. The fiction isn't overtly right, atheist. Uh, so yeah. how did you, so how did you, did you just kind of sense that that's what the philosophy was about or were you questioning it separately? Because that, that's a big thing to break with a Catholic family, uh, parents over that kind of thing. It, did you yeah, get it was, books or was it yeah. part of your kind of sense of life? I, it, was, it was a little bit part of my sense of life, too. I was I was an altar boy, as I think you were, Richard. I was raised Catholic, but I, I didn't have the uh, the benefit of being an altar boy like you did. <laughs> I know you've told me some collegial stories about the altar boys, which are just, I don't know if they should be off, off camera or not really hilarious. Yeah. Well, I was never, you know, nothing ever, I was never molested. Let me just, oh, that, you know, okay. Good to know. I, yeah. that, that I actually, I, the experiences were pretty positive as far as yeah. being an altar boy. I was very young, right. but I was already having doubts about religion, like age 12 or 13. I wrote a poem for my eighth grade 
student literature paper where I was kind of questioning the existence yeah. of God in a very mild way. Right. And then I don't know what clicked. You know, I, I began reading her nonfiction probably at age 14 or 15. So sort of as I was reading the, the uh, fiction and I learned she was an atheist and I felt it made me certain about being an atheist. Like, you know, if I was having doubts, Ayn Rand gave me that certainty. And, you know, my, I, I had a kind of a very traditional Catholic family, you know, going to church every week. So it didn't go over well with my, with my father, but, you know, Hey, you know, I, that's another thing objectivism teaches is the virtue of independence. And that was the lesson I definitely took to heart. Wow. That's wonderful. Also, if, if you get the sense that, listen, I still have a morality here. It's not, uh, atheism is so tied up with, well, you must be an immoral monster. I mean, once people start realizing, no, no, I've, I've, I've got the morality here. I'm learning a, a secular morality that helps. Yeah, it gives a scientific basis for yes, morality. You know, right. it's scientific. And that's, I really like that a lot. Now, I want to just hear, uh, I, I know this, but the audience should really hear this. Why did you go to Wall Street? First of all, where'd you go to college and what was your major? And then how did you get well, to Wall Street? Yeah, so I was an economics major at, as an undergrad in, at the University of Florida, which is where I grew up. And, uh, uh, you know, after business school, actually in, in business school, I didn't really know much about Wall Street. I had previously considered being a lawyer before that and worked for a year or two as a paralegal just uh, to check it out. And wow. no regrets not becoming a lawyer. I have <laughs> no regrets. But um, I discovered this field uh, that's called equity research, where yeah, right. you analyze, uh, you know, uh, stocks in an industry, and then you advise uh, uh, fund managers, hedge fund and mutual fund managers, on where to invest their money. And you specialize in a certain industry. I loved working on Wall Street. I have to say, I, I yeah. really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. It was very good while it was good. I mean, I did see some ugly things during my in my experience on Wall Street, and. You know, it's uh, uh, not, you know, not because, you know, it's not a flaw of capitalism, but there, you know, you find good and bad people in any field, yeah. but also you see the effects of regulation. You know, it, yeah. there's, it's one of the most highly regulated industries in the economy. I mean, everything I read, wrote had to be read by an attorney. I got fingerprinted just to do my job. Like I'm a crook, you know, they uh -huh. see you're a crook right. at the outset. Right. The vast majority of people I met were, were really moral, good, you know, honest people who, you know, and, and there was something clean about the Wall Street environment where your goal was to make money. And it was, un, un, people were, you know, unashamed of that. And it, and it was, I, I liked that environment. Now on Wall Street, they, you know, Ray, they call it the sell side, and then there's the buy side. And since the sell side is trying to distribute stocks and bonds and equities, it, they're often the analysts, uh, not just the investment bank, are often charged with being non-objective. How did you handle that? Because here you are, you're coming in and you're becoming more and more of an objectivist and it requires an objective, you know, means of knowledge and things like that. Did you ever face any kind of problems with that where you couldn't be objective because you were underwriting the client? Yeah, I did. Uh, and I, um, by the way, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably more than we, really, we can really talk about here, but uh, the government, I'll just say very briefly, the government changed, they intervened in Wall Street in the 70s. It was something that they called it the Big Bang. And basically what they did is they forced, they stopped Wall Street firms from agreeing on a minimum commission for trading securities. Right. So it pushed the revenue Wall Street firms would get from trading securities way, way down, which meant that trading stocks uh, was no longer much of a, a revenue generator for the firms. 
Instead, what became the big fee generator was investment banking, underwriting securities, offering new stock. So what that resulted in was a bullish bias among Wall Street firms. So I was an analyst. So the way I interpreted my job, you know, was simply I, my job is to give a fair recommendation to my right. investors. Yeah. Now the thing is, in a bullish market, yeah. you know, it's easy to be bullish right. on stocks. You right. Know, and you know, it just the you know the whole stock market's going up. But where you know where because they're they're so skewed to that towards underwriting securities. Right. If you are bearish on a right. stock that is a an underwriting client of the firm. The firms don't like it, and I oh, had that yeah. experience. I there was this industry that I covered, which was the electric utility and power generation industry, and I was the first uh, uh, bulge bracket or first analyst period to turn negative on power generation stocks, and unfortunately, my firm you know didn't like it. And, uh, they you know they advised me to stop publishing, to change the titles of my reports. Oh wow! It was very de very yeah. demoralizing to me. Yeah. Very demoralizing. But, you know, I, I have a big and, and ultimately it led me to go on, and onto the buy side where I tried to manage my own money, which I did yeah. for a little while. Where right. I right. Hedge and I managed yeah. myself. But that's why I did it. So before, though, when, when if companies didn't have that mis unbalanced incentives, if they made more money from trading, they would they would welcome bear, correct bearish calls because the, the trading clients of the firm you're making money for them. So for example, when I made this bearish call, Fidelity sent a block of trades to our firm. They were really happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like our firm says, oh, we made a hundred thousand dollars from this or a million dollars from this versus 50 million yeah. we could get from underwriting a new stock, yeah. which won't happen anymore because Niles is bearish. But anyways, yeah. just it's a, to make that long story very short, um, uh, I was totally correct. Yeah. Uh, in one case, there was a CEO of a firm who was very upset at my downgrade, he blamed me. I said, look, I'm the messenger. You know, you're building too many power plants. The margins are collapsing. He lost his job. His firm went bankrupt. You know, yeah. and I could give you know, many more yeah. examples of that. Yes. But it, it, ultimately, the experience led me to, to uh, look away from Wall Street. And, and, you know, I ended up in academics. Having followed your career over the years, and you and I talked about, I know there are so many instances when you were under pressure and you perform so aim admirably, so objectively, and it wasn't always easy, you know. But I like how you defend Wall Street generally. I mean, it does still pay for merit, and I don't know if you think that's changed over the years. Maybe it's changed over the years, but it is that kind of perform or else kind of uh, place. So, what, what do you say to a student who says uh, finance is parasitical? The whole financial sector doesn't add value. Did you, ever hear that? Did you ever hear that from students or sure. maybe, maybe even from other finance professionals? <laughs> I have. So there's, a, there's, yeah. a, there's an infamous anecdote, and I, I think it's true. I think I looked into it. It was true. You may have heard the same thing. So there's this guy on Wall Street, and he traded an esoteric security. I forgot what it was, like, you know, third world debt derivatives of a certain nature. And this, yeah. this it's, you know, the story is his nine-year-old daughter one day, they, they had to take her dad to work day or you know, take her daughter to work day right. and or and she said daddy what do you do and you know. he's trying to explain it to her he couldn't really yeah. do it and then she's saying well what value do you provide and he couldn't answer it couldn't he was answer. unable to answer yeah. the va value of his own profession but now to this guy's i'd say both his credit and his idiocy so his, <laughs> his moral integrity this is on a friday he resigned his job on a monday he said i don't see the value that i'm providing 
I have yeah. to resign my job. Yeah. But his idiocy, because if you understand the economics of finance, it's all value added. I mean, you're, what and the simplest way to look at it, as you know, Richard, is uh, anyone in finance, any aspect could be trading the most arcane security. You're redirecting capital yeah. to its highest valued use. Yeah. yeah. You're 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 moving money into the Steve Jobses of right. you know right. of the world right. and taking them away from that WeWorks right. guy. You know, and it's a continuous process of reallocating capital to where it can create the most value. All of Wall Street serves that function. Yeah. And it's sad that you know people aren't taught this in their finance classes, in their economics classes, in their philosophy classes. So. Anyone in finance, I mean, you can email me and ask me, you know, but, you know, uh, it's moral. It's good. Now, let me just say one quick thing. You know, th this firm I worked at, I guess I won't just say the name on this, but yeah. it was a large bank that also had an investment banking division. It's one of those three firms you mentioned. So, but as a bank, they effectively are subsidized by the Federal Reserve yeah. system. Now, yeah. you know, back when I worked at Goldman, for example, it was a private investment partnership. So it, it didn't have that going on. Later on, that changed. This bank, this which is the largest bank in the world at the time I worked for it, was getting a subsidy from the Federal Reserve, which meant that its cost of capital was artificially low, which meant that they could afford to do dumb deals. And they could do, no. afford to not listen to their analysts saying, don't don't invest further in this power generation industry. Don't underwrite more stocks in this industry. Yeah. You know, advise your firms to pay off their debt because it, it's going through a downturn. You know, but so and I found that I worked like comparing Goldman to this other firm, the quality of the bankers when they when the, when they had one firm getting this big subsidy from the Federal Reserve and this other not. The quality of the bankers with the firm with the subsidy was much lower, and they made worse investment decisions. So subsidies, we often talk about finance being regulated, but maybe they're regulated because of what they call moral hazard, Ray, where they do reckless things because of these subsidies you mentioned. So what, what would these include, like uh, deposit insurance or the too big to fail or discount window, those kind of things, discount window, liquidity bailouts? Those kind of things are making them more reckless. Absolutely, and it, it gives them a lower cost of capital. I saw this firsthand. I was involved in deals at both firms, and you know the subsidized firm, it, for example, they they would actually buy an equity offering yeah. by offering super low cost loan to the firm, uh, and said, "We'll give you this low cost financing, basically subsidized by taxpayers through those yeah. three mechanisms you talk about." If you give us equity offering, when I was at Goldman, as an example, and I don't want to, you know, Goldman has its own problems, but when I was at Goldman, they had a higher cost of capital. They yeah. couldn't do that because yeah. they were paying, they were, had to pay a market price for capital. So they had to make better banking decisions. So You're a lot expert. of the problems you hear about are due to government intervention and in, in the in the uh, in the wall in Wall Street. A lot of the problems are like that. So your experience on Wall Street, other uh, others of your peers, uh, lots of smart cerebral people, brainiacs, uh, traders, FX, you know, underwriting, capitalists as financiers versus capitalists as advocates of capitalism. What did you find? Were your peers mostly pro-capitalist ideologically? Were they mostly Republican? You know, the standard view that the rich uh, country club, they're all Republicans, they're all pro cap Did you find that amongst the rich folks you worked with on Wall Street or did they lean less? Was there any kind of pattern you noticed politically? Well, you know, oddly enough, I never really talked about politics 
usually oh, you my did. Yeah. What, yeah. clients. So, you know, but my guess is it ran the gamut. You know, even uh -huh. at a place like Goldman, you'll find, you know, you know, left, left wing, you know, all, all across the spectrum. But um, you know, generally we were just busy, you know, making money, focused on you yeah. know, helping to direct capital to its highest valued uses. <laughs> and now I don't know if you have the experience I have had with students that were born, uh, you know, they were younger during the 08, 09 uh, financial debacle and crisis and recession and all that. And they took an anti-capitalist view out of it. And remember Occupy Wall Street, you have a question. In fact, so one of our viewers here asked the question about what do you think about the Occupy Wall Street protests of 2010? That was in reaction to the Wall Street bailouts what, what do you think caused that crisis and should and what was your reaction to the government bailouts at the time yeah so i it's one it's an article i did write it and uh while i was still uh you know sort of winding down my wall street career it's called 80 years of subsidies and i talk about the causes of that 2008 uh financial crisis um basically the government uh uh, you know, has been subsidizing home purchases by subsidizing mortgages since the 1930s. And what happened is they ramped up the subsidies dramatically in the 1990s and the beginning of the 2000s. So, you know, and it was a bipartisan thing, you know, uh, Democrats and Republicans, you know, George Bush, uh, Clinton, you know, George Bush would say more Americans need to own homes. Well, yeah. right. let's just imagine that the, for the people who have gotten mortgages already are your you have a, have a higher credit quality, a certain credit quality. How can you get more people to, to buy homes? The only way you could do it is to go to the deadbeat borrowers. Yeah. And they would do this by subsidizing mortgages to the point where you could buy a home for a $250 down payment. And then even $0, they're working in $0 down payment homes. So what the result of this was, this is the fundamental cause. People have written a lot you know, about cause. This is the fundamental cause. The real price of homes, so the real price of homes, there's a chart you can find out there on the internet from 1890 to 1996, it's essentially unchanged. The real price of homes across America, except for a dip during the 1930s. Then from 1996 to 2006, the real price of homes doubled, doubled in one decade. That's not the market. That has yeah. nothing to do with the market. So yeah. what happened is, as the home prices went up, you know, there were securities issued that were collateralized yeah. by the inflated value of homes and unsustainable value of homes. Now, there's other things that went on. Uh, interest rates were pushed artificially low by Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, who even encouraged people to get these uh, adjustable rate mortgages, which are great when interest rates are low, like the 1% uh, short-term you know, rates at that time. And then, but then when rates go up, your, your mortgage payment goes up dramatically and people begin to default on their mortgages. So it's a combination of these two things with subsidies being the fundamental cause. And I look at those mortgage, the interest rates as sort of the, the proximate cause of the crisis, but it made no sense for housing prices to double uh, in uh, 10 years. Uh, you know, the Wall Street firms that got involved with this, you know, uh, you know, they were they were sort of uh, only, they only behaved this way because of the government artificially propping up the price of homes. It's 100% of government created crisis. So the Occupy Wall Street uh, people should read my article. They should yeah. study economics. You know, yeah. economics takes some effort to actually understand things, takes some effort, right? Rather than memorizing slogans 
you know, and, 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 you know, but unfortunately, you know, this is what you and I are both professors. So we're there to help educate people, right? <laughs> but maybe they should have occupied Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the lobby, the lobbies of those uh, uh, hybrid agencies. Remember so much per month. I think, Ray, they call them subprime loans. Subprime, yeah. subprime means low quality. What in corporate life yeah. we would call, what we would call junk bonds. Gee, how, what could possibly go wrong? They're promoting junk loans. Yeah. And so then, my, uh, yeah, my brother, he had, uh, he was a lawyer at the time, and part of his practice was doing real estate deals. Yeah. To his credit, well, what happened there was so one day he's at his desk, and uh, his hairstylist comes in uh -huh. to his office. She's going to buy a home. She's going to buy a home bigger than my brother's house. Now he's a lawyer with his own practice. He's making a decent income. She was getting one of these like practically zero. A dollar down payment loans with an adjustable rate mortgage, and my brother said he's you know he's not an economist, but he's like something isn't right here, and he he sold that part of his practice right away, so he got out of it before the house of cards blew up. Wow, uh, I have a question on the side here. I'm looking at the chat and social media. Keep the questions coming in; they're really very good. I'm trying to get to the ones I can. Uh, Andrew Jackson famously was against uh, the second bus, Ray, 1830s. Yeah. Against uh, they didn't call it central banking then. Do you think the Fed should exist? No. Why? No. It's, in fact, well, part of the reason is I'll tell you. I'm, I'm actually I just finished reading this book. I'll do a little plug. Oh. This. this this man was a professor of mine at GMU, Lawrence H. White. I love Lawrence. Love Larry, Larry White. I love him. You know him very well, Larry White. Yeah, you know, yeah. him, uh, you've, yeah. you know, he's the leading expert on free banking. You know, so what banking would look like under laissez-faire, and and in the history of banking and gold-based banking, and actually the reason I, I'm actually going to review this book for the uh, review of Austrian economics. Oh, great, uh, good. Be, and I know that. And I noticed the subtitle is gold, fiat, and Bitcoin. So he's he's comparing and contrasting all three as monetary yes. system? Okay. Yeah. So what, what's great about this particular book, which I could recommend a lot if anyone's interested in central banking or whether we need a central bank, he is comparing, like, if the government got out of the way, like, imagine a laissez-faire world, okay, first of all, we, would, we wouldn't have fiat banking because that means there would be no central bank, which is a government-run bank. So fiat banking just sort of you know, falls by the wayside, it's inflationary, causes business cycles, all kinds of problems. So he's asking the question, given laissez-faire, yeah. would, which would work better, which would emerge and be dominant, gold-based banking or Bitcoin-based banking? Yeah. And he really gets into the economics of it. And, you know, if you read that book, it definitely is, you know, even in making this, discussing this issue, it's clear that we shouldn't have a central bank. I mean, yeah. you know, and I think, though, but the base, so a banking system, though, it doesn't have to necessarily be gold. Yeah. I think it, it should just be free. You know, uh -huh. the banking contract should be free. And the the base money that's at the root at the banking system, you know, let the best money emerge. It could be gold. It could be Bitcoin. I mean, who knows? Now, back to the, that's great stuff. Yeah. Larry White is the best. I think uh, I met him in the late 80s. He totally influenced me on free banking and the gold standard. He was great. Yeah. And you've written a couple of good books, uh, you know, on the subject. Yeah. Ray, I want to get now to the transition to academia, but what, let me, let me uh, learn about this. Uh, while you were in finance, I mean, Wall Street is a very, I know what you did. That's a very intense, uh, long hours, very intense, lots of travel. Why you were doing that, were you also 
kind of self-educating on reading Austrian economics, Mises, Hayek, Schumpeter, you know, the usual yeah. crowd, maybe even Milton Friedman. Tell us about that because people do juggle careers with, you know, uh, learning and you don't always have to go to school for that. Were you reading stuff on the side, so to speak, while you were working I, on finance? I did. It, first of all, it was a very demanding job, as you know. As you know, I mean, I, I have to be at my office by 7.30 to 8 in the morning. Sometimes I'd wake up at 4 in the morning and write an article to be out the to get to the lawyers by 6 a.m. to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, read before the market opens and, yeah. you know, traveling. I wouldn't even know which city sometimes I was traveling to. So I didn't have a lot of time for outside re reading, but yes, I did. I, I read, uh, you know, you mentioned George Reisman, uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek, who's actually my favorite Austrian economist. Uh -huh, okay. Uh, and, and then, you know, more recently, I didn't read till I was, uh, till the, Right when I was transitioning into academics, uh, uh, my uh, I took a graduate course at Columbia in the history of economic thought when ah, I was thinking uh -huh. about going into economics, and that's when I read Schumpeter, who's uh -huh. actually my favorite economist. But uh -huh. but yes, to answer your question, yes, I did do a lot of reading. Now, when I really got to read these people in detail, though, was when I was at George Mason University getting my uh, PhD in economics, which is the leading. Austrian economics graduate school in the world. I mean, it is. So now, uh, those who don't know, Joseph Schumpeter, if I remember his date, 1883, 1950. So an Austrian, but he also taught at Harvard, right? He was a game to America, was very influential. Tell me why you like him so much. Tell me what, what his major contributions are. Yeah, first of all, he's, he's, he's funny. He's actually, I, I like his style. It's a very big, grandiose style. He had, you know, there's a lot of errors in his thought. So I'm someone I, I just sort of pick and choose. You know, I, I get, uh -huh. although Ayn Rand, I basically agree with essentially everything. But, you know, I pick and choose. But um, uh, what I like is he has the most, you know, certainly it's the most original theory about business cycles among all economists. Mm, that's quite right? a statement. That's quite a statement. Yeah, go ahead. It is. So his, his book that really influenced me was written in 1911. It's called The Theory of Economic Development. It was actually written one year before Ludwig von Mises wrote The Theory of Money and Money Credit. Credit. Right? He, yeah, he right. first described the Austrian theory of the business cycle. They were classmates together at the University of Vienna. Wow. Uh, but but, but uh, what Schumpeter uh, 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 talks about is he was interested in, in progress, like what causes a rising standard of living. So, you know, it's the same thing Adam Smith was concerned about, right? That was the, the his full title of his book was about, you know, the origin and nature or whatever. Of the, you know, I, I forgot now, but, you know, rising standard of living, what causes it? Right. So what Schumpeter said is that, first of all, he said the motive driver of progress. Now, this is in 1911. This right. is also way before Ayn Rand wrote about this. Right. Uh, was the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur. So, yeah, the men of the, the entrepreneur. Wow. So I call his theory the heroic theory of the business cycle. I wow, very cool, heroic. Yeah, yeah. where I talk about it that way because he really puts it on the shoulders of the entrepreneur and he has a heroic vision of the entrepreneur. He said the entrepreneur, these are the people who break through obstacles and wow. have an original idea, right. a new idea. They create, to use Schumpeter's words, new economic space. Right. New right. economic space. Think about it. It's like a new economic realm that never existed before, like Henry Ford with cars, right? Like Steve Jobs with the iPhone and smartphones. These didn't exist before. 
and and he uh, you know computers uh, you know Intel with computers and and Bill Gates with computers, you know it's it's expanding the economic world. Now where he's interesting, he said in the process of bringing these innovations to the market, the entrepreneur has a disturbing effect on the economy. First of all, if it's a big innovation, part of a big innovation. Uh, like, you know, we can look back in history, like the railroad boom in the 1840s in, in, uh, in England, you know, like during the 1920s in America, which is a boom uh, driven a lot by electric electricity, electricity related industries, also chemical, chemical industries and things like that. You know, maybe in the mod, more modern recently could say maybe the Internet industry in the 1990s. But what happens is these big changes uh, cause the creation of new financial capital as these entrepreneurs are bidding away the factors of production from their existing uses. So they're hiring workers, they're bidding up salaries, right? They're renting office space, they're bidding up rents, they're paying for steel, they're bidding up the price of steel. Yeah. And a general boom occurs throughout the economy. Yeah. And, but, the, but, the, but then what happens is, and this is, he's well known for this term, we're probably about to say it, but creative destruction, that's his right. you know, term which he famous, wrote about later on. Famous term, and, yeah. What does that mean? But what happens is, is that, you know, then there's a winnowing out of the winners, yeah. winners from the losers, and that's when you have a recession. So what Schumpeter describes is a pattern in the economy where it's, it's the, the secular trend is upward, but with these ups and downs yeah. as you go upward. And this actually pretty accurately describes every capitalist economy yeah. in the world. Now, the problem is they're all mixed economies, not purely capitalistic. And there are other causes of these booms and busts, like uh, a government inflation of the money supply, for example. So, you know, but, but, but what's interesting is if you look at how people look at the boom and bust cycle, right? If we look at it, here's, here's I could summarize very quickly how all economists look at it, okay? Um, uh, left-wing kind of Keynesian economists, so real left-wing, a Marxist would say, yeah, look at those booms and busts. That's going to lead to the immiseration, the impoverishment of the worker, and that shows that capitalism is evil, right? Well, Marx was wrong, right? We got wealthier, even though we had booms and busts, right? And then Keynes said, well, you know, those booms and busts are also, it's, a, it's kind of an indictment of laissez-faire, so we can intervene like crazy with fiscal monetary policy and sort of try to smooth out the booms and busts. Then you had people on the right, okay, Milton Friedman, the Austrian economists, who said, yeah, those booms and busts are bad, but they're mm. all due to government inter intervention. Yeah. And if we have the right policy, maybe we can smooth out the booms and busts. And they're yeah. all across the board on this. Yeah. So, you know, you have like the monitors say, well, Milton Friedman said, if you have a, a smooth upward rise in, in the money, supply, in the money right. supply, right. Right. you know, uh, the Austrians say like, you know, maybe Larry White, you know, would say, if we just had pure free banking, it would right. smooth out right. the business cycle. Right. Then you have some other people who claim to be pro-free market, they, and they, they consider, them, consider themselves part of the Austrian school, who actually want to intervene on the market because they say, yeah, the market is going to have these booms and busts, and it's due to fractional reserve banking. So we got to abolish that, have 100% reserve banking. But what's interesting is they all think the boom and bust is, uh, is bad, right? Uh -huh, it's harmful. Right. Right. And they just differ you know, on whether it's you know, inherent in capitalism. Some of them say that or whether it can be controlled or not. Some of them disagree on that, but they all think it's a bad thing. Schumpeter says, hey, it's an unavoidable side effect of uh, technological innovation, 
right? And it's it. I it, he's the only guy who says that. So he's pro capitalist. He's you know, yeah. he basically pro laissez faire. There's yeah. you know some people disagree about whether he is or not, but yeah. but th so this is what this is what I'm writing about. This is like God, I you know floats my boat. I wrote part of my dissertation on it. That's the, the, yeah. that's the area that interests me. This is a profound integration on your part um, to see Schumpeter's theory of the cycle and relate it to the wide gamut of other theories. That's really remarkable, Ray. And it, it sounds like the lesson you're learning or the lesson he's teaching is don't worry so much about business cycles and don't just presume that boom bust means artificial. Um, uh, the, the, the whole creative destruction thing is something like, uh, you know, automobiles replace horse and buggies and the light bulb replaces candles and uh, that kind of the telephone replaces letter writing. Right? It's not like all those products don't still exist. We still have horse and buggies in Central Park. But uh, that's what he's talking about. Right. Don't worry if there's cyclicality due to that. Something like that. Yeah. And and the promotion of the entrepreneur, I guess today they call them disruptors. Um, let me ask you about the transition. Let's get to this transition. How did this transition occur? from finance to academia? Like, how did you go about thinking, you know what, I really wanna be a professor? Because you are, you are now, congratulations, what, for four or five years now more, yeah. professor of economics later in life. How'd that happen? How'd that work? Well, there are two reasons. Um, so I'm, I'll, I'll mention one. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I, when I was winding down my Wall Street career, uh, I wasn't sure what to do. And so I, I took, uh, a course you could take do this at Columbia University. You could take almost any course uh, uh, for credit, but as a non-degree student, it's it's a really nice thing. So I took a graduate course in economic in the history of economic thought. I'm sorry, the history right. of economic thought. Right. And I, I it's like it's one of my two favorite courses I ever took in economics. With the other one being my very first course as an undergrad. I mean, I adored the right. course. And I discovered Schumpeter in the course. And I wrote my term paper on Schumpeter. And then, so that, that was going on. Then Richard, you're the other reason. You're the other reason because you got your PhD later in life, your PhD in political economy and became a professor, which you are at Duke University. And, you know, so I, I kind of had that role model. There was also a, a, another fellow that we both know who unfortunately has died, uh, John Lewis. John Lewis, the same yes. Thing. Yes, who was also in you know, business so, for many decades, yes, before he became yeah, a classical and scholar. As well. yes, yeah, and he became a classical scholar. I know. So it's yeah. you you and John, and I actually met and had dinner with both of you one time yeah, when I was I thinking about this. Yeah. you remember that? Yeah. And so then, I was so you two guys brought an inspiration that it can be done, right? That's and then I went back and I had dinner with uh, my professor after the course was over, this guy at, at, at Columbia University. And I said, you know, I, I think I want to go into academics, but I mean, I'm not, I'm older than your typical person. Yeah. And, yeah. and he just looked at me and he said, he said, Ray, some people are late bloomers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Ray, he I said, do it. When I, was do making, it. when I was making the transition and at, I don't know, age 47 or so, I needed a letter from my MBA professor from three decades earlier. That's he happened to me too. Which, I did the which same he did, thing. Which he thankfully remembered me and wrote a letter. But his favorite expression was, uh, I don't know if this will work, Richard. You're too old to mold. And I said, oh, what, is, what is that? I like the rhyme, but what does it mean? He said, no, no, we like young 22-year-old PhD students that we can mold and, you know, make them uh, 
automatons of us uh older means you're uh setting your views you know and uh so if you can get over that and get over the bias that might be associated with late as they call late bloomers well i'm so glad you made this move because i think you're very happy with it you first taught well you got it at gmu was that hard how long did it take and how did how was the experience getting it at george mason university in fairfax How'd yeah that so well, yeah, I mean, I got accepted there and they gave me a little fellowship and whatnot, yeah, but I, I, I finished my PhD in five years. Now, uh, it was a little bit slower. I um, I did get some course credit, as I imagine you did for my MBA. I, I, I did, but, uh, but my wife, I'm happily married. I've been married now 11 or 12 years, but, uh, you know, we live in New York City and GMU is in Northern Virginia. Yeah. So every, just almost every single weekend, I would go back to New York. I would generally take a bus. I didn't have a car. I'd never owned a car, actually. I drive, but I never owned a car. And uh, so, you know, I did that for like the two years of coursework. And, you know, occasionally my wife, I'd be, you know, talking to her and, you know, uh, or FaceTiming and she'd say, Ray, you just look really tired. Stay in Virginia that weekend, oh, you know, oh, and I would just, yeah. but, you know, our marriage survived and, and <laughs> you know, yeah no yeah. regrets because i'm very happy teaching i'm very happy doing what i do uh so no regrets but i had a, a similar experience it was it was tough getting a job immediately so i yeah. my my advisor a very uh a well-known austrian economist who i like very much he was also my dissertation chairman that's peter betke peter's like, great yes peter betke he's great you know he was, help, he was helpful on the job front yeah, he was. And and so he said, Ray, you just got to like start working somewhere, even if it's further away. So for two years, I worked at DePauw, D-E-P-A-U-W, a liberal arts, private liberal arts college, DePauw University in Indiana. And I was commuting every two weeks by plane to New York. Wow. And I did that for two years. So wow. now I'm settled down in New York City. Uh, you know, it's still trying to make it a permanent gig, but I'm hoping it'll turn out that way. It's a full-time gig and, yeah. and I love it. I teach history, uh, economic history. So I'm teaching economic history and I'm teaching history of economic thought. So, you wow. know, economic history and then also the history of, of economic development of economic ideas. And then I teach micro macro, you know, different right. courses like that. Wow. Uh, that is quite a, that is a kind of a role model, but how do you do this late in life and how do you get the jobs? And what if you are anchored geographically in some place and you have these other values a beautiful, wonderful wife, I know, and family and all that. Uh, well done. Not easy. Uh, also, going into it this late, it's almost like you're not going to get tenured. You're going to have to put together some uh, contracts, right? A multi-year contract. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a one, I have a renewable one-year contract. Yeah. Um, there's a, at my university. There's a, a actually a, for a decent chance I could convert it into a tenure track position. But, yeah, oh, great, great. But generally, you know, it's funny about tenure is. Um, uh, you know, I, my whole career, your whole career, you know, I never had, there's no tenure out there in the non-academic really yeah, it's actually, I mean, actually, Yeah, it's actually on the decline, isn't it? What's that? It's actually on the decline as an institution at seems. Yeah, it is. And so, oh. I mean, on Wall Street, you could be fired literally on a yeah. moment's notice. And if they right, fire right. you, they don't just, they don't give you notice. They walk you out the door. I mean, because you might have <laughs> right. trade secrets and right. yeah. data. I know. I mean, I liked yeah. it. It was great. Yeah. That's why they pay you a lot of money too. You work your butt <laughs> off and maybe you get walked out the door. Hopefully, I don't know. Now, uh, Ray, Ayn Rand's 1967 book, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, part of what she said was unknown uh, was its history. And I know you love economic history. 
Uh, here's here's so here's the question: Do the students you deal with, or you know, not just at St. John's but elsewhere, do they know economic history? Do they know the history of capitalism? You know, what if they said to you, "Why do I care to know?" you know, what industrial production was in the late 1880s. Give me, give me theory, give me uh, ISLM curves, give me, what, what would you say, the importance of economic history? Well, I think um, you have to, it's the evidence, you know, economic history is, you know, I mean, you know, if you're interested in um, understanding the economy, you need to understand economic theory, you need to understand economic history. I think it should be required for any well, economics degree uh, I think it should be offered by every history department, as, at least as an optional course. Yeah. But every every now GMU, uh, I don't know if they, they didn't mandate it, but yeah. they offered it, you know, yeah. and um, uh, but it's your evidence. So, for example, the theory the, you have different theories, right? Marx says capitalism results in poverty, right? Well, what happened? What What's the history of capitalism yeah. show? It actually shows right. opposite. It shows a rising standard of living for everyone. Right. For the, so-called workers, right? The people yeah. at the bottom, as well as the people at the top, who are also workers, even though Marxists don't call them workers. Yeah. Uh, you know. So I think it, 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 it's you. You need to know the history of capitalism to understand our economy. The other thing you need to understand is you need. You know, when I look at the economy today, we have a mixed economy. It's a mixture uh -huh. of freedom and controls. So when I see things that don't that seem to work well or that don't seem to work right you can't just say oh that's capitalism right the way a leftist would they just call what we have capitalism no it isn't it's a mixed economy with capitalistic elements and socialistic elements and if you study economic history it helps you to tease that apart uh -huh. you see what's contributing to the results we see out there in the economy i think these two interests of yours very interesting history of economic thought you know from probably uh, smith right or the physiocrats smith malthus marx up to keynes uh, current day samuelson uh combined with the knowledge of the details the empirics is a nice combination because these theorists should be looking at should be looking at the world and saying this is the way the world works why would they get it wrong? But let me ask you this, Ray. We've had now uh, more than 100 years of, I don't know, 25 or 30, quote unquote, socialist experiments. And we still have famous people like AOC and others and Bernie Sanders and others pushing socialism, whether they call it Democrat. Why do people still want socialism? Or maybe, maybe younger students mostly. But what, what, what is that all about? Now that they now that the record is in, so I bring it up because now that the economic history is in, you know, it's not we're not talking about loving it in 1916 before the Russian Revolution. We're talking about loving it in 2023. What what do you how do you explain that? Yeah, our world with iPhones, jet travel, antibiotics, you know, hmm. uh, nuclear energy, you know, everything else. I, it's a great question, and actually, this is where um, I think objectivism helps. Ayn Rand's ideas because uh, she talks about that and um, you know she attributes it to the morality that people hold and I, I think that uh, understanding that that people's moral beliefs really influence how their framework as to how they evaluate the world it, it sets their framework as to what counts as important evidence what does not mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. for example a, a Marxist, you know, there'll be an instance of a bat of a of, of a mean uh, uh, factory owner, 
you know, who mistreated the workers. And he's all yeah. on that. That's yeah. the important fact. Not the fact that over time, the standard of living rose, the conditions of the workers got better, their lifespans increased, their health increased. That's not, that doesn't get focused on. Instead, that one thing gets focused on. Or, for example, this, this um, I'd say almost pathological uh, focus on inequality. I, I, you know, I've never understood this. A lesson I learned early on is not to envy what other people have, mm. except that, you know, maybe if they have something that I want, I can go out and earn it and buy it for myself, but not to say, oh, my life is miserable because someone else has a 120 foot yacht or they fly yeah. around in a helicopter, or whatever it is. Yeah. So, um, so the, the, you know, the morality that Ayn Rand talks about is this morality of altruism, you know, that the moral purpose of a person's life is to serve other people. And if that's the case, you know, if anyone has more than another person, they should feel guilty about it and hand it all over to the person who's poor. Now, economics will tell you if you try to do that, if you try to do that in law through government policies, it will result in death, misery, destruction. Every communist state had famines, okay, that tried to implement this, right? But so Ayn Rand has this idea, she says, you know, the moral is the practical, right? It's certainly impractical to do that, but it's also immoral to do that. So the, the positive message you get from objectivism is that your life, my life, is of supreme value, you know, mm -hmm. and I have the right to soar. If I can soar like an eagle to the highest heights, like Steve Jobs, right. and become a multi-billionaire by selling all these products that benefit all these other people, I have every right to do it. And that the moral is the practical, that person's gain is not any harm to me, but yeah. it actually expands that economic space, to use Schumpeter's words, that we all are richer and are better off. Yeah. Now, in, in uh, introductory economics, you know this, I've seen this. Uh, what do you make of the standard textbook distinction you'll hear right up front? Well, there's positive economics and then there's normative economics and never the twain shall meet. You know, the normative, the second one being the morality or the justice. Of, what do you make of that? Is that a legitimate dichotomy or is that a good way of splitting it? It's, I think it's a terrible idea. So the idea I use with my students, we talk about this, like especially in my history of economic thought, but I'll talk about it in my regular intro micro class as well. Um, and I say, um, you know, think about a doctor, what a doctor does, right? Now, is a doctor indifferent towards the health of his patient? Does the doctor have to be indifferent towards the health of his patient in order to be objective and factual yeah. in how he does his work? No. The doctor has a normative goal, a normative interest, which is the health of his patient. The doctor is pursuing a moral goal, and that doesn't get in the way of being objective. So yeah. this moral, this positive, uh, normative positive dichotomy, there are two roots to it. You know, one root to it is that there's this fear that if you have a moral uh, goal, you can't be objective about your work. Yeah. So as an economist, you know, we don't want to be objective. We want to be empirical. We want to be factual. So I'm not going to think about, you know, any kind of moral goal in my work, you know, yeah. I mean, at its extreme, it would mean like, you know, I could, you know, I could equally work, you know, for a dictator or for, you know, a, a, right. the American president or whatever. But, but the other aspect of it is, um, uh, uh, the other aspect of it is, though, is this is, is, is from a philosophical error, which stems from a religion, actually, which is this idea that morality is arbitrary, that it's sort of made up. It's a matter of faith. Right. And we're scientists. You know, we're scientists. 
we don't want to be messing around with morality, which is the realm of religion and faith. So we're going to be positivists. So, you know, Ayn Rand says that morality, you need a morality to live. It's an objective requirement of life. And you can know the right morality through an objective process, through a scientific process, a scientific philosophical process. So, you know, I think of myself, so that doctor analogy is a good one because I think of an economist as we're doctors. Uh-huh. We're doctors concerned about the economic well-being of, yeah. it, of people in yeah. society. We want prosperity. Yeah. Right. I, I remember Reisman once said it should be as controversial for a, an economist to advocate capitalism and prosperity as for a doctor to advocate, you know, health and nutrition. Like, why would that be controversial? Ray, I'm going to we only have 10 minutes left, so I'm going to go to some of the questions that have been submitted. The Probably the shorter the answer, the better. Uh, sure. So here's a uh, uh, here's a good one. Um does teaching the ideas or holding the ideas you have in, in university uh, uh, make you vulnerable to being canceled? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I'll give it a simple one word answer. answer. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Now, okay. Here's another one. Uh, what do you think of the current state of the business cycle? Think that we're on business cycles. Uh, how high interest rates will go? Uh, you know, you're basically your outlook for. Uh, the U.S. economy and maybe just the U.S. Uh, generally, you know, intervention or not, pro-capitalism, anti-capitalism or not. What, what's your kind of outlook for me? For yeah, the- I don't have a specific uh, viewpoint right. on, on where we are in the current state right now, which you know, it's probably more your domain, Richard, with your professional work. But I, I, I'm not uh, looking at the economy at that level. OK, uh, OK. Uh, but, uh, you know, as far as maybe a broader perspective, um, I'm bullish. I'm bullish, okay. you know, I'm bullish on. Uh, on uh, you know economic growth, the world, and okay. I think you know, the right ideas. These ideas are getting out there, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like they are. Yeah, so, and I noticed. I notice over your shoulder is that superabundance. That book is. It is. Uh, oh yeah, I've talked about it recently. It's really a very optimistic take, isn't it, on creativity, entrepreneurship. I, I mean, I even if policy is bad and the government's fiscally out of control, sounds like you're pretty high on what kind of entrepreneurial stuff's going on in tech and elsewhere, right? There is Absolutely. a lot of good news out there. There is. I mean, you know, new cancer treatments and AI, which AI, I think is a good yeah, thing. I'm yeah. not. I'm not afraid of it. You know, yeah. this book, Superabundance, by the way, is something I really can recommend. Yeah. Um, right. It's a good work in economic history and the history of economic thought. But what's amazing, what these authors do is they calculate, they look at historically up to the present, how much time of, of your work does it take to produce the money to buy a, a good? So, for example, like a meal uh, 150 years ago might have taken four hours of your labor. Yeah. Today it might take 10 minutes of your labor yeah. to pay for a meal. As an example, I mean, I, I'm not using those exact numbers. Yeah. It shows how dramatically our yeah. standard of living has improved. Yeah. It's a good book. Yeah, it's amazing. The time price of things. This is, it's a brilliant book. Martin Toupe, I think it's a human progress project also over at Cato that he's associated with. Um, uh, very good as well. Uh, here's another one. Um, would you recommend that, uh, that young students start with Ayn Rand's fiction or nonfiction? Uh, that's that's kind of a nice question. I mean, I think the <laughs> I think you'd start with either. I've met people who come time range ideas and they begin either way. Um, I found the fiction really powerful. If you're, you know, in a way, it's funny. I'm almost would say 
you're going to enjoy the fiction more the younger you are. It's just hmm. it's like, I find this in general. Like if I read okay. Victor yeah. Hugo now, yeah. I wouldn't have the same experience as I did in my 20s when it just rocked my world. So, you know, maybe that would tilt towards starting with the fiction. But I think you can go either way. Read Capitalism, No, 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 Ideal. Read The Virtue of Selfishness. I know someone who got into objectivism through Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. <laughs> wow. Which I wouldn't recommend as a first book unless you're uh, Right. Now, you're a New York City guy for many, many years. Here's one. Could could you explain for those who don't live in New York what these housing lotteries are? I don't know if we want to get in the weeds here, but I thought I would combine this with me noticing that three or four of your AIER essays are on housing. You seem very interested in housing, the economics of housing, how it could be messed up. Quick thoughts on housing in America, that sector, how it's treated in New York. I know you hate rent control. Why is housing interesting to you? Well, part of it's because I live in New York City and I suffer. This is the most regulated, intervened in housing market in the country, which with the result that there's a, a real, uh, ins there's insufficient new housing being built every year. So the result is we pay the highest either rents or apartment prices in the country, sometimes in the world. Yeah. So I care as a New Yorker. Uh, also, it's just I've decided I'm going to focus more attention in this area. You know, just I want to focus on something that in business cycles are kind of I'm going to focus on for now. I also uh, learned there's a major, major lawsuit underway right now to uh, to uh, try to get rent control declared unconstitutional. It's an uh. amazing effort. I met with the lawyers involved in it. This is a very serious effort. It's led by the leading groups of apartment building owners, regulated apartment building owners in New York City. And their goal is to lose in the courts, meaning they're going to lose in the, in the New York State level. They know they'll never get a, you know, they'll never win in New York State. And they want to get it up to the Supreme Court. I think just today, uh, reply briefs were, were, uh, were made on this. And so, you know, I find it inspirational. I want to do what I can by writing economic articles like I am on this topic. I'm reminded in the chat also that we interviewed the author of Superabundance here at the Atlas Society, Martin Dupe. I believe our CEO, Jennifer Grossman, did that. So go to YouTube, Atlas Society, search for Superabundance. I do remember this now that I think about it. That was a great interview. Uh, okay, uh, last question. Uh, I'm going to intervene here and ask the last question. Are you... Are you optimistic, pessimistic, something else? The future of objectivism, the objectivism movement, the spread of Ayn Rand's ideas. You've been in this 40 years. You have a perspective that few have, others have, right? What's your take on whether Ayn Rand's ideas are going to spread, take hold, in what ways? Any thoughts on that? You know, I think one thing to bear in mind, it doesn't take many people to move the world, huh. right? Yeah. Uh, like in terms of entrepreneurs, you know, someone like Steve Jobs or someone of ideas, Ayn Rand, she was just one person and she's having the impact yeah. she's having. So I guess I, I will say I'm optimistic, although, you know, uh, I do think, um, uh, you know, uh, people are seem to be less conceptual, less thoughtful than they used to be. And, you know, if people aren't conceptual thinkers, I think it's harder for them to to, you know, they, they, they're not very good at thinking abstractly. I also think people's education levels have really sunk in terms yeah. of just knowing things like history, like, you know, when did World War II happen? When did the Civil War happen? You know, yeah. things yeah. like that. Yeah. But you know, having said all that, I think I'm optimistic because, 
you know, re reality will win in the end. But, you know, it might right. take many, many years. I don't think I'm going to live in a cat and a laissez-faire world in my lifetime. But I think I can live in a world where I can ha have a very good life. It's, it's significantly free. And I, I know I think in the end, the ideas will win over some long time frame. I like that. She also said those who fight for these ideas live in it today. We're, we're, we're talking about it right now. I feel like I'm in a universe that's wonderful because I'm with Ray Niles talking about great ideas. You know, that not that what we want? A world where there's a bunch of people like that. Yeah, I, I think yeah, also sure. your insights on entrepreneurial. Someone in academia years ago told me, don't just be an academic, be an entrepreneurial academic. Start journals, uh, go to conferences, stir the pot. Uh, you know, so I think it's interesting, your interest in entrepreneurialism and your history of this, you combine that with academia, you can be an activist academic, academic and still be a scholar, you know, not a, yeah. not, not a crazy person. That's, that's how to do it. We have, unfortunately, Ray, we could do this for three hours, I think, run out of time. So I wanted to thank you and very much for this. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I hope the audience, I think the audience did. And I want to thank all of you uh, who joined us today. Uh, if you enjoyed this video or any of our other materials, uh, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And also, for next week, be sure to join our CEO, JAG, Jennifer Grossman, who will be speaking with British broadcaster and comedian Andrew Doyle, and that's on the next episode of The Atlas Society Asks. Professor Niles, Ray Niles, great to see you. Uh, great to talk to you. Continued success in your remarkable, remarkable career. Thank you, Richard. It was a real pleasure. Real okay. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.